I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the NRB podcast. I'm James Butler, a contributing editor at the paper, and I'm very pleased to be talking again to Jeff Mann, who is a professor at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. Jeff and I spoke a few months ago on this podcast about the economic models used to tackle climate change. And he has a piece in the latest issue of the LRB about economic growth, green growth and degrowth, which we're going to talk about today. Hello, Jeff. Hello, James. Nice to see you again. So your piece is primarily around this range of books on on kind of degrowth and climate change. But I thought we might start kind of a little further back. And so... You know, obviously, uh, and you, you actually start a little further back in the piece as well. So the pursuit of growth is sort of so central to political and economic decision making that, you know, it, it, it's it's sometimes hard to imagine it could be otherwise, right? It, that They appear to be the same thing, right? Political decision making is the pursuit of growth, right? But that hasn't always necessarily been the case. So could you tell us a bit about like when and how that happened? Absolutely, I can give it a shot. Um, it is not in any way uh, a question that I think the answer is uh, understood to be settled, if that makes any sense. There's still a great deal of controver- controversy, is probably overstating it. There's still a great deal of debate uh, amongst the historians of economic growth and the historians of thinking about economic growth as to when it emerges. And so you hear a whole range of stories. I mean, there is a sort of in my opinion, something of a lunatic fringe that says that, you know, there's no history of this, this is human nature. Um, but if we set aside that that question right now, I mean, the vast majority of histories begin kind of with the begin of, beginning of capitalism itself as a sort of mode of organizing our economic lives. So you often hear Britain between 1500 and 1800 is where the idea of growth emerges, even if they didn't quite use the term then. And there is certainly a history of, in that era, an emergence of an understanding of a pursuit of productivity growth, of efficiency in our productivity, especially, I think, in particular, uh, around colonial extractivism and the imperial project more generally, which, as you know, was an incredibly expensive uh, process. And so uh, the powers that be were interested in making that as cost efficient as possible, um, especially relative to their competitive peers, we might say. And then there are other folks who, who attribute it to a kind of, uh, you know, there's one quite notable book that, that attributes the idea of economic growth to a so-called Republic of Letters in Europe in the 16th to 19th century. Um, so Erasmus and, and uh, you know, folks like Francis Bacon become central to the, to the process. But I think the, the standard, if you ask the average economist, the, the, the standard answer would be it begins with thinking like Adam Smith's and sort of focus on productivity, the division of labor, the the historical process of enclosure and and technological development. But in terms of actual talking about growth as a policy objective, it really is, uh, not that there was no discussion before the Second World War, but in terms of the economists' focus on the possibility 
uh, of economic growth that really is a post-World War II phenomenon um, that emerges actually largely or initially amongst uh, post, uh, in other words, after Keynes economists working in England and to some extent the U.S. So, you know, there's folks that I mentioned in the piece like Simon Kuznets who, who make it central to effectively Cold War policymaking. The idea was that growth delivered what revolution might be tempted, might tempt people to try and create a sort of redistributive or increasing wealth for the masses. And, and the idea was that growth led by the technologies and and policies of, of the liberal West could, could deliver that wealth in a peaceful, market-integrating way. Um, and I, I think that effectively, whether or not that's the accurate history, it's a it's one that makes sense of where we're at right now. Right. And I, I mean, it's kind of centrality as a, a political criterion or kind of political goal. Uh, it seems that you mentioned kind of very briefly in the piece that this is also a post-depression thing, right? So you have this kind of this extraordinary period of economic pain for a lot of people and after that you get a kind of you know this sense that you know compounding interest and growth are going to be essential not just to political decision making but also you know modernization seems to be part of it as well right that and in the long term so you mentioned Kuznets then and there's this kind of uh, belief which seems to have lingered around economists for a long time that ah oh, well well economic growth it's unequal in the short run but in the long term actually it tends towards kind of uh, you know rising tide lifts all boats and all, all that sort of thing um so this is this this seems to be quite a significant change and the reason I'm asking this question is that that this actually suggests to me that everything we're thinking about growth or the centrality of growth to politics as it's conducted today is really a very very recent phenomenon. I mean, so this is where the debate, I think, would would emerge. There, I would say, yes, it's absolutely a recent phenomenon. I think there are others who would sort of historically recode the conversation around political economy in the centuries previous and say that they were actually talking about growth. They just, you know, didn't have the right language or they understood things. But I think the way you're describing it is a much more accurate description of where we were at. The, the, the centrality of growth, and in fact, now the, the sort of unquestioned assumption that it is a necessity, so much so that, you know, the standard account of, of the stability of the Chinese regime, over, over which, you know, I wouldn't claim to have any expertise. But, you know, the standard story is that the Communist Party can only keep hold of China precisely because it continues to deliver growth. And that when it can't, which it looks like is kind of around the corner, perhaps, that its legitimacy will crumble. I have no idea if that's true, because I don't want to claim to know that kind of, but but there is this this idea that growth becomes the sort of central political objective of a, of a regime that's trying to sort of construct a long-term project. And in that sense, it's absolutely a, a very recent phenomenon, despite the fact that it's held up as a sort of like hidden gem of human nature. And the, the kind of categories you use to talk about it, um, obviously, one of the things you mentioned in the piece is gross domestic product. And um, I think some listeners will probably be familiar with the fact that there have been controversies over whether this is a kind of sufficient measure, but it nonetheless seems to be absolutely central to politics as it's conducted today. So maybe just before we come to the question of, you know, degrowth uh, and related issues, it would be worth saying, you know, what is it that's being measured by GB, GDP and, and perhaps in particular, what it fails to measure? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think probably lots of people are familiar with the critique of, of gross domestic product, but it really is just an aggregate measure, uh, almost always, but not always at the level of the nation state. So we would say in Canada or in Ireland, the gross domestic product is the 
sum of all the spending inside the economy, which is generally understood to be equal to its output because the output is assumed to be bought and therefore consumed, so spent. Um, and, and that means that uh, it measures all activity that generates income in any form whatsoever. And that, as I joke, or I suppose it's not a joke, as I mentioned in the piece, you know, can include uh, me having a heart attack uh, or you uh, needing treatment for, you know, a disease or, or it can mean you uh, spending your income on improving your education uh, or going to the gym. Anything like that. It doesn't really matter. So it doesn't take any account of the nature of the spending, nor does it take account of the distributive impact of the spending. So an addition of $1 million to the GDP means the same in the measure if it goes all to me or $1 to a million people. And so you can imagine there's extraordinary problems with that measure because it doesn't actually tell us how, even inside a particular nation state, how we're doing. And so there's lots of alternative measures, none of which have really caught on, to be honest with you. But there's happiness indices and there's progress indicators. There's a whole variety. Uh, the UN has its own uh, human welfare index, I believe it's called. I, I might have the letters wrong. But none of them have really caught on. When you look in the newspaper and they're talking about growth, they're always talking about GDP growth. It's it's astonishing, actually, that the, you know, even many of the writers you're writing about kind of default to this sense that there is a, a you know one of them says you know, the human psyche has an in, innate desire for growth and you know I, I suppose it's just worth noting how profoundly this sense lurks in the mind um, of people who are writing about this stuff but obviously the the way in which most economic activity takes place on this planet has somewhere within it carbon consumption fossil fuel consumption and so you know the question arises what do you do about it and you know as you see it the responses here fall into two camps and one is the techno optimists the kind of green growthers these guys who believe that you can decouple growth from planetary destruction and then there are the degrowthers who believe that you can't <laughs> and so you know that the green growthers in particular and i think we should probably start with them partly because what they're proposing might feel a bit more familiar to listeners. Um, they encompass a very wide range of people. But would it be right to say that it seems to me to be now the default ideology of the major international institutions thinking about climate change? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it is. It is now. I mean, I, mean, I think there's a part of me and probably a part of you and lots of people who, who, who have to work hard to suppress a cynicism about it. The fact that it's actually not how folks are thinking, but certainly uh, the public-facing dimensions of most large corporations, the states, uh, not the United States, but states in general, um, green growth is now um, considered to be the path ahead. Um, the question is, of course, you know, organizing the financing and, and institutional structures that can make it possible. Absolutely. And there's a very there's a very wide range of kind of political perspectives in there. I think you have sort of people towards the more social democratic end, people like Mariana Mazzucato. You have Mark Carney, um, obviously former governor of the Bank of England, really essential in, in putting together this kind of huge um, international financing round that, that happened at the last um, conference of parties. But one of the things you say is that these guys have, you know, the burden of proof here lies with them. Why? I think... Uh, I, I, and I wouldn't want to say that this is somehow, you know, 
the genius that Jeff of Jeff thought this up himself. The 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 critique from degrowthers is effectively, you know, show us the money. You've been saying this for forty years. Um, the Club of Rome was, you know, in the early nineteen seventies. Sustainable development was the eighties and nineties. Green growth was the the two thousands and the two thousand and tens. And we still, if you look at every chart of the effect on the planet of the you know largely capitalist economy, it's disastrous. So at at what point do we say, okay, growth people? You know, show us the money. When are you going to deliver this supposedly dreamy, you know, improvement in welfare, saving the planet, redistributive mechanisms? It, it, it hasn't shown up in any meaningful way whatsoever. And so that's all I was trying to say is that, you know, we don't have much time. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, you know, that this because sometimes I feel like the, the you know, green growth, it's just a kind of contradiction in terms, right? That it's like one of those things like, um, what is it? You know, things you can construct linguistically, which nonetheless um, are, are completely unreal. You know, this colorless green idea, sleep furiously, that kind of thing, right? That this is this is something you can do with language, but as it pans out on the ground, it's it's kind of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to go anywhere. Nonetheless, like you can see why, if you're in the international institutions, that this is a much more attractive option than some of the other stuff that you're writing about in this piece, um, which we should probably come on to now, which is degrowth. And I suppose at its simplest, it comes from a recognition that growth as it exists, whether it can exist in some other form, but growth as it exists is destroying the planet. And therefore, we need to find a way, a controlled way and I think that question of control is really important, a controlled way of putting that process into reverse. But from that recognition, it seems to proliferate into all these kind of different forms. So how wide a range of thinking comes under that umbrella? An extraordinary range, it turns out. Though I would say in general, you know, the degrowth movement, because, and I really would want to focus attention on this immediately, um, because if people are listening who are completely unfamiliar with the idea, they may not realize that degrowth is not just about slowing the economy. It always also includes an, a real, really strong emphasis on redistribution. So insofar as virtually all the degrowth literature that I've you know, been, become familiar with or anyone I've spoken to, um, all of them would put that redistributive mechanism at the center of any degrowth effort, which means that the range to some extent falls also coterminous with what we might think of as left or progressive thinking. I don't know of many non-fringe degrowth advocates that we might think of as farther right on the political spectrum. But inside that range, there is, there's a great deal of range. There are folks who, who effectively come across as kind of, you know, post-World War II happy days liberals who who think we can kind of pull this together as a community with many of the same kind of solidaristic mechanisms that supposedly held together the post-war societies, at least here in North America. But then you also have folks that I, you know, in, that I speak to in the piece, like Jason Hickel, who, are, who argue very clearly that degrowth is actually, you know, a part of the larger eco-socialist project, um, and it can't be divorced from it. There are, not every degrowth person agrees with that position, um, and many hope, I think, that it needs to be that it sorry that it can be less politically radical and therefore less threatening to the average person, you know, which, which uh, is in general, I think, the motivation behind the positioning is an attempt to kind of sell the idea as the wrong term because it sounds too cynical, but 
But I do think the folks who are trying to tell us that we can do this like they did it in happy days and everyone will be happy, they're doing it partly because they think that's what people want to hear. And to get people on board, you need to tell them that the world is not going to change too radically. I mean, the difficulty, I think, with, with that proposition is that, and, and as you say in the piece, I think it's true with, with any question of, of kind of climate politics, is that this stuff gets big really, really quickly, because the issue is planetary. And like so many questions about climate politics, it always seems to come to that question about scale, you know, about whether it's possible even to, to operate at, at this scale, at this kind of planetary scale. And one of the questions I thought was in kind of implicit or kind of gestured at in the piece is what bodies exist that can do this, that can, you know, implement a kind of degrowth politics. And, and is that question addressed in the literature? Um, yes, it is. Um, mostly in a, in a sort of propositional way, because everyone that is writing about this stuff is very aware of the limits of the existing institutions. But many of them are more hopeful about the potential of those institutions than maybe I would be. So, you know, the UNFCCC is, you know, is quite commonly pointed to as something that could become more powerful. It, its mandates could become binding. Um, the UN itself is actually often held up as the possibility of a kind of global parliament to some extent. Uh, in fact, I was just part of an event a couple of weeks ago where there were two or three serious proposals, and I don't mean that to dismiss them. There were two or three very serious proposals about, you know, managing planetary decline effectively, and both of them put the UN central to that mission. But in terms of institutions that actually have the power to, to realize any of these plans, no, those don't exist right now. We could say that the ones that exist could be transformed to do so, but no, they don't exist right now. And in some ways, I have to say, because of the the potential for the kind of power we're talking about, that's not necessarily always a bad thing. Um, but no, they don't. Right. I mean, like the the thing I suppose that, that in a sense is, is interesting here is obviously, when it, as you were just saying, it, it's not clear that there's a degrowth politics on the right, but you can imagine what a climate-friendly degrowth politics of the right might be in terms of kind of highly isolated or kind of autonomous states you know, i.e. I, that they see, you know, the project of kind of climate adaptation as being one in which actually you break apart the kind of international order and revert to a kind of you know, much closer to the land, much kind of much more closely kind of guarded and ethnicized, you know, small autonomous. This is a kind of, you know, right libertarian idea, which I think is, you know, very, very far off the charts of kind of mainstream politics. But you can kind of see how that thing might work together. But I suppose, you know, I, certainly it doesn't seem to have any kind of support behind it at the moment, things change. One of the things I thought was really interesting, uh, you know, in the piece is, you know, you mentioned some of the possible policies that degrowth might involve, things like kind of mandated, you know, non-meat or ultra-low meat diets, things like that. And, and obviously that raises the question of what body enforces them. But I, the question you also raised with it that I found very interesting was the question of whether we can, whether this even you know, sounds like policy at all. Um, it sounds like kind of enormous cultural transformation at a level, um, you know, that really maybe even goes beyond something like policy. Is that the right way of thinking about it? That's certainly how I think about it. I, I, I don't want to say that's the right way, but that's certainly how, how, how I think about it. I, I do think that, again, this is, you know, this is not easy. So if you and I are poking at holes in the degrowth discourse, let's say, that's not to say those holes don't exist everywhere. 
we're, we're just poking at degrowth holes as opposed to others. Because it is not easy to imagine and propose, one might say, a whole new way of organizing effectively planetary life and not coming up with a set of institutions that are immediately going to be held out as the, the solution, but at the same time, of course, they always bring with them their own problems. And so the other way to think about this, I think most obviously, is a much more kind of revolutionary moment that shifts the way the world works in particular places in different ways. And that, you know, sets aside to some extent the question of policy, at least for the short term. But the problem with proposing the degrowth solution as a policy problem is that policy assumes power. And at what point, again, we might even ask the same question we've asked of the green growthers, which is at what point will the people in power be the ones with these ideas? The timeline wouldn't appear to match that scale. So then there's a sense of, so, okay, so we say there's going to be a policy that will move toward vegetarianism or something like that, which of course is, sounds a little bit kind of funny, but in some ways it's part of what the discussion is. I think it's quite reasonable to ask, and without knowing the answer myself, what policy would do that? And, and, and how would we put that in place? And so then the question becomes, again, one of timeline, one of politics, one of solidarity building, and the kinds of things that, as you know from reading the piece, are some of the questions I want to ask most fundamentally of the degrowth movement. Right. I mean, it's one of the things that, that one, of the, one of the books you mentioned of, seems to be sort of highly individuated and see kind of degrowth as a matter of sort of what, the phrase reimagining or reconstructing our growth imaginary or something like that. And Obviously, on, on one level, it's, it's sort of I, I'm inclined to kind of laugh at the sort of slightly hippieish, you know, sense to these things. But one of the things that strikes me about kind of environmental movements is actually how often they return to these, this question of kind of you know subjective positions and the way in which people think about the world. And it does seem to me to be you know necessary in the medium term, actually, probably to have a conversation about the way in which the way in which we value things is going to need to change, um, the way in which we you know. Uh, our culture puts a, a weight on nature and its preservation will probably need to change. Obviously, I, you know, I find some of the attempts to do that not always completely convincing, but it seems to me nonetheless to be, um, however uncomfortable for sort of serious policy types, nonetheless quite important. Yeah, I share that sense and the sort of knee-jerk discomfort with it at, that, that it seems like you're expressing I am very wary of ideas that put the human psyche or the individual, even worse, at the center of these transformative projects. But at the same time, I would never want to say that that's a futile direction to take, precisely because right now we need to take every direction we can. I think we spoke about this last time, but I really do believe that, that right now is a time for it's not a time to attack people whose project is essentially aligned with ours, but different in certain ways. Um, and so uh, I, I hope the piece has that sort of generous tone to it. The, the idea here is that I'm on board and, and I think we all should be. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below.
we can get into the detail, I think, because I think this is this reveals some of the stuff that is really interesting uh, about the degrowth uh, sort of movement as a whole. So, you know, in the piece, you sort of propose a, a, a thought experiment, which is an inversion of the production function of neoclassical economics, a reduction function instead. So whereas in the production function, you have a kind of, that's about how to kind of intentionally and purposefully combine capital and labor, possibly a lot of other inputs as well, in a way that sort of maximizes your output. A reduction function would be thinking about how to combine things in a way that deliberately sort of shrinks that output. I hope that's not too much of a, a, a you know, too, too, too traducing um, of the complexity here. And obviously, there's a kind of critical history of the production function. And, you know, I know Joan Robinson and people like that have lots of interesting things to say about it. But I suppose I'm really interested in where you then take it because you point out that thinking in terms of reduction, and this is, I think, maybe one of the benefits of the degrowth literature, thinking in terms of reduction reveals some of the implicit politics in production, right? That all political decision making, all freedom actually lies with one part of that equation, right? It's capital um, that, that gets to make a lot of these decisions. So, so, I'm led on to questions like, do the kind of categories you want to think in have to change? And do we want to find a better way to account for resources, for instance? Maybe we want to pull apart that kind of that K that stands for capital in the equation and distribute its kind of power of allocation elsewhere. Yeah, that uh, is a direction I hadn't taken it in my own head. But absolutely, that's precisely the kind of thinking that I think we we need. The, the, when I proposed the reduction function, interestingly enough, when I wrote the first draft for myself, I called it the destruction function. And then I decided that the tone of that uh, didn't get across what I wanted to get across. So I, 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 I changed it to reduction. Um, but in my head, it's still something of a destruction function, which I also thought communicated something of the unraveling of the kinds of relationships that currently underwrite sort of productive mode or productivism, as degrowthers would call it. But the implicit question, which you've made explicit, is, you know, the process by which we undertake this, whether or not it matches, you know, or is measurable according to certain indices, is itself central to the process. And democratizing the process of degrowth is central to every single account of degrowth, from the more hopeful to the to the more radical, to the you across the whole board. Everyone swears their fidelity to democracy. And the reduction function, if we could, or reduction functions, if we could figure out what they might look like in practice, would all, if they are true to the degrowth fidelity, would require a radical democratization. That, of course, has not happened for the most part on the productive side of things. The question is, you know, how does that happen? Who's involved? Who decides who's at the table? You know, this is something of an aside, but there's a great and a really wonderful book by a woman named Astra Taylor, who you may know, called uh, uh, Democracy Does Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. And it's a, it's a fantastic book. But in that book, one of the things she recounts is this, is the, I don't know if it's mythical, but they at least the story of how democracy was founded in Athens. And it was founded by the act of a ruler who decided that the existing ways of mechanism of organizing the governance of the city had to be changed. And by fiat, he enforced democracy 
upon, upon Athens. And I think that kind of really ironic moment is in some ways still at the heart of our question. So we say we want to democratize, but, you know, is it who decides? How do we do that? And that is, I don't have an answer, but that is the, the rub at the heart of these movements. To avoid them becoming a, a kind of, you know, inverted authoritarianism, where we degrow from the top down. Right. I mean, one of the things that that I've always been interested in, in kind of political history is, the, is these kind of questions of sort of self-denying ordinances, right? Where um, elite bodies of one kind or another sort of either dissolve themselves or deliberately limit their powers or deliberately kind of give power away elsewhere. And there aren't that many in history that are very successful at it, it has to be said. <laughs> um, but they're, they're, they're important, I think, for, for this kind of politics um, in particular, and I think I think it's particularly hard now to get people on board. You know, when, when you know the sort of innate sort of sensibility, I think, when it comes to this stuff is, you know, is whether you know whether kind of elite bodies are going to um, impose effectively a kind of austerity on everyone else um, while preserving for themselves access to um, the kind of goods and the kind of sort of you know complex social uh, structures that uh, we benefit from today. And I think it's a reasonable suspicion, right? And it's one of the things that, that obviously haunts green politics, you know, wherever it occurs. It's one of the things that, you know, among many others, that animates lots of the kind of kickback against nominally progressive, nominally green measures like those in France, obviously, um, which, which provoked lots of kind of contestation. I know we talked about that last time we we, we talked and so so that that sort of question and it, but it seems an interesting one to me it seems to be increasingly characteristic of climate politics is this kind of odd juncture between the technocratic or just highly technical and the populist and it, it's you know it, it's increasingly I think concerning to me but just to, to stay on the question of reduction I suppose one of the things that comes front and center from from this is that you know, most people's experience of economic contraction of any time, any kind is is that it looks like and is experienced as a kind of catastrophe, right? And that you know is one of the you know it's it's often you know it seems to be a very shallow critique on one level, but like it, there's something to it when people say this does not sound <laughs> an attractive politics, right? Like you want to degrow things. Well, I, you know, when I've been in economies that are degrowing, then I can't you know, pay my rent, I can't feed my kids, I can't heat my house, big thing in Britain this 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 coming winter. So I suppose like the, the practical political question, and I wonder if this is in any of the books, and I'm sure that these people are thinking about this, is how you deal with that immediate instinct. Mm -hmm. So yes, everything I read is concerned precisely with this problem of what we might think of as the legitimacy, you know, the, the struggling to, to build some legitimacy for the project in the short and long term. The solutions aren't revolutionary in the sense of things you and I haven't heard before, but that's not a critique necessarily. Uh, again, to return to it, the centrality of redistribution is key to the idea that this is possible. Um, and it's also the case that really, for the most part, you and I, I mean, as privileged and fortunate as we are, would most likely never have experienced a, a contracting economy that prioritized redistribution, especially at the scale that degrowthers are describing it, which is also for them a global problem. You know, you and I live in the most highly consumptive and affluent parts of the world, and most of the degrowth plans involve a massive transfer of resources from where you and I live to places where things are much harder 
And so that is the key to answering the question you're describing, which is to say that, yes, we, we are going to contract, but it's a, it's a shrinkage that will ideally, actually, for most people on the planet, make them better off. This is, this is the, the question of workability, setting that aside right now. And that, that's not to say I, I think it's not workable. I just I want to set it aside. This is the, this is the way that the, that the, that the legitimacy challenge gets addressed, and it also, as you can imagine, brings in the question of the the necessary politics that might be involved. Because partly what we're saying, if we take this on, is that the degrowth project cannot be measured by its profitability, and it cannot be motivated by the possibility of entrepreneurial success and profit. It has to. It has to have other goals and other measures. And the removal of the, the, the need for competitive accumulation sets aside certain kinds of politics as being essential. And this is, I think, Hickel's point. He's like, we can't do this without being socialists or eco-socialists um, because this can't be about making money, which is essential to the green growth narrative. Right, exactly. And and that makes sense. And I think, you know, this is also, it's increasingly, I think, the the, the, dis, the distribution question has been on my mind a lot recently, partly because, I, you know, I, <laughs> England is a country which has had such abundant kind of water just in rainfall for so many years that, that actually the kind of edifice of common law in Britain, you know, is very relaxed about water rights. Like, you have rights to water however much you want if you have property abutting water. These are all things that are going to to change, and so the, the you know that this question of you know how we think about things as basic as kind of profitability is you know these are clearly going to be on the agenda. Just this question of the, this relationship between sort of elite politics and popular politics, which I think is 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 one of your concerns in the second half of the piece. Um, you draw a really instructive parallel with the the politics of development. And there's always been this kind of virtuous position in development politics, which kind of worries. I mean, I'm not I'm not dissing it here. I'm saying, you know, that it worries a lot about its, you know, the, the fact that its conversations tend to happen among elites, both internationally and nationally, and that the politics of elites has, has largely been the one through which kind of development politics is conducted, not exclusively um, over history, but certainly in the last few decades. And it seems to me an instructive parallel because, you know, those questions about development are still on the agenda, right? One of the questions about climate politics on a planetary scale is about development. You use that, um, I think, quite famous Champeterian line about that, you know, which says that development is is not just kind of a gradual change. It's not, you know, it's, it's a qualitative change in the kind of society um, that you live in. And so one of the questions, I suppose, that is on the agenda for degrowth people is how do you deal with people in the global south who say, what you're saying is all very well, but you've had the benefits of globalization while we've been underdeveloped. And now you're telling us that we can't even have the kind of trickle down benefits of carbon intensive social development. So, so you know, obviously, again, the key here presumably is redistribution. But is there, you know, how do they deal? How does degrowth should deal with the question of technology and technological distribution? In precisely the way that, in my opinion, the best of the development literature did which is to say that technology transfer uh, and the resources with which to use it over time and develop it domestically, one might say, um, is, is again, a central part of this redistributive project. But you're right. And, and I would say also that the best of the degrowth literature is also very aware of the limits of, of, the, of you know, those kinds of plans. But that doesn't stop them from making them, <laughs> if that makes any sense. And, and again, this is a bit of a bind. I mean, I, 
I, you and I have had the chance to speak about this before. And so, I, you know, I, I don't want to go on and on about it. But, you know, in the past, I've done a lot of work on, on Keynesianism. And, and in many ways, I see, I understand Keynesianism as being, in some ways, the elite answer to these questions. It arises precisely because the, the, the timelines and the politics necessary to make this work are considered to be unworkable. And therefore, we deliver the elite answer. And that can take the form of technology transfer or development. And in fact, someone like, you know, there's a very famous economist named Albert Hirschman, who is well known since past, but well known for his contributions to development economics, who understood development economics as actually just a derivative of Keynesian economics, precisely for this reason. I come up with the solution. I talk about it with you. You're the leader in the domestic you know, context, and we put the program into place. And that is effectively what degrowth sounds like a lot of the time, even though it's trying really hard not to. And my problem, I guess the toughest problem is I can't blame them. I, I can't tell them, oh, I know the way to do this. No, I think that's right. I, you know, and I suppose the, you know, this, this leads us on nicely to the kind of contemporary question, right, which is that you know, you've had, you know, in, in the United States, Biden has just passed this enormous inflation relief act, and that's that provides kind of 370 billion of kind of green incentives. And there's lots of things that it involves, you know, it involves kind of speeding up transition, um, incentives, to kind of solar energy, reduction of emissions by about 10 percentage points further by 2030. It is probably the most significant piece of climate legislation passed there in my memory. Although it's clearly a very imperfect one, it's clearly not enough. Um, you know, it includes these kind of insane concessions on oil pipelines and sort of bungs to fossil interests. But I suppose the thing that's interesting about it for this conversation is that it's so clearly keyed to the international discourse around green growth. So the question, I suppose, is have the green growth has already won? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I would say no. Though our confrontation with that failure, which I, to be honest with you, believe is somewhat inevitable, the point at which we come to grips with that maybe farther down the timeline than would be convenient to other efforts. Um, I do think they've won the discursive battle thus far, absolutely. So much so that, you know, there are moments in all the degrowth books where they they have to kind of play the the game of inviting the creativity that's, you know, available in the economy to solve these problems in a kind of quasi-entrepreneurial manner. And that, I think, is just because we are all to some degree beholden to this kind of way of understanding the world. But I don't think they've won. And in fact, I think part of the problem will be overcoming it soon enough. I mean, as we said earlier, this whole framing, you know, I thought of bringing a graph, and but then it occurred to me that, of course, we're just talking and no one can see what I'm doing. But, you know, I could show you the emissions graph and say, like, this is green growth. This is the promise of growth. Right. I mean, th this is the this is the thing that when I was thinking about you know, prior to this conversation about what the degrowth perspective on something like the Inflation Reduction Act would be would be that that it it just it's seeking to do something that's impossible and it might you know sustain it for a while longer and that's an actively bad thing, right? Because if you accede to the claim that you can't maintain the current model of economic growth and change emissions in the way that we need to. And I think, you know, I'm convinced of that case. Certainly, I think most of the degrowthers, or all of the degrowthers would be as well. And and I so I share the concern that this package, and you know, like, the, 
it's in a sense it's impressive only given the history of <laughs> of american car, you know uh, climate change legislation right you know, cut, you know cutting you know the emissions by 10 points further from the 2005 baseline by 2030 the, it, I mean, it's clearly not enough and one of the problems that it's that it strikes me having been thinking a lot about de- degrowth recently as a, as a result of this piece is that you know it, it puts us further on the road road to uncontrolled degrowth right in the long run and i suppose that question of control and planning and you know the ability to intentionally degrow parts of the economy in order to resist the probability of collapse is is what's central here and i you know is is the long run result of something like the inflation reduction act it seems kind of very hostile and very ungrateful i suppose as a as a citizen to say this is to say that it's almost worse than doing nothing in that it gives us the sense that actually we're on the right track mm-hmm. i don't know where i sit to be honest with you entirely but i understand completely where you're coming from i mean the, you read folks like Leah Stokes, you know, wonderful people committed to climate change who are celebrating this legislation as at least a step in the right direction. You read folks like really brilliant, in my opinion, analysts of our current situation, like Matthew Huber, telling us that there's a reason that the fossil fuel industries are clapping as this thing goes through Congress. It's because it actually doesn't make any difference. And then you read folks who would say, like, I think you're hinting that this could actually make things way worse because it will, you know, we'll think we're making progress when we're actually falling over the waterfall. All of those things are true. And the solutions, of course, are hard to see. And they often seem to, what, I can't think of the right word. They're, in some ways, the solutions, even from folks who are on the same side, are competitive solutions. So then the debate becomes a kind of smashing of other people's ideas in the hope that somehow yours will float to the top, which of course, in my opinion, doesn't get us anywhere. Um, And it goes against the thing we need the most, which is building solidarity. These moments are very difficult. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the, you know, I I, I find it very difficult to know how to, how to think about these things, because there's, there's a sort of instinctive maximalism that arises from taking climate change seriously which is that doing anything else other than kind of total social mobilization you know is a is an abdication of responsibility on the other hand one of the things and one of the things i think that you're kind of very generous to in the piece is that lots of the green growthers have a point when they say this is what we can do right it, it's not even a question of whether it's the right thing to do. It's the only thing that is at all possible given how um, dysfunctional various political systems are and how strong the interests of the other side are. You know, again, I, you know, I worry that in the longer term that that's that leaves us off worse than when we started. But, you know, I, I don't have a good answer to that, that question. But I suppose the thing it does circle us back to is is that thing that we've been talking about, about that, that crux between technical expertise and political necessity. Um, and then perhaps the third term is sort of mass popular consent or buy-in. I read something very optimistic a few days ago, which was um, a, a paper saying that, you know, m- most Americans have a completely distorted sense of actually where um, you know, popular sense lies on this issue that actually things are moving at least in the in in this sense in in the right direction, and so I guess one of the, the you know th- this leaves us with that kind of peculiar sense right where we have developed kind of technical expertise and, and kind of highly technocratic 
politics, which of a kind is necessary, right? If you want to sustain the kind of complex societies which we have, which have things like healthcare for people who get ill and, and you know, cancer treatment and things like that. But for it to operate on the mass level that needs to be effective, there clearly needs to be something you know, which has popular buy-in on a level that we just haven't seen. Even with the kind of various upswings in climate mobilisation, they don't look anything like perhaps what we need. So I suppose uh, it's my final question for you, really, which is that you know, your piece ends with thinking about lots of these solutions which emanate from these kind of relatively elite political and intellectual circles. And you end with a kind of call for humility. Um, and it was a it was a call I thought was really important because it's an unusual virtue to find um, in, in the climate field, right? Which is very much, as you say, has, you know, we have the one key solution. Um, so I suppose my question is, is where, if anywhere, you've seen that kind of humility in action um, and perhaps what it would look like in terms of contemporary political practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been struggling uh, w- with trying to think about where these ideas might take me or anyone else uh, over the last couple of years. And I've been bouncing around ideas like a kind of, you know, like a modest radicalism or a radical modesty, um, humility, these kinds of things, which I think are, like you say, I mean, in the old school meaning of the term, they're virtues that I think are absolutely necessary, not only to the process of realizing the world that that I think we can, um, but also to that world once we get there. Um, and I do think, without saying that I have extraordinary experience at all scales and all, you know, moments of climate politics, but I do think that this is starting to happen in, in important, if presently small-scale ways. For, I only have, for example, my own experiences here in Canada to, to draw on to some extent, but there are many folks I work with here, you know, in my non-work life, my, my I guess, political slash community life, the one that we all have, who have over the last 10 years really come to understand that the tables that they have set to discuss important questions are not intentionally, but are not welcoming to other folks. That you have to actually maybe disassemble the table or not have a table at all to bring certain people into the discussion. And whether or not those moments, which sometimes, of course, are cynical attempts to kind of bring other groups in to give yourself more legitimacy. This has certainly happened a lot in Canada around Indigenous folks. You know, the environmental movement has spent decades trying to build alliances, some of which are sincere, but others of which have been quite instrumental. But bringing those people who have not been traditionally involved in in the discussion actually means maybe doing things quite differently and, in fact, allowing them to describe how to do things. And that, I think, involves the beginning of a humility that is the kind of thing that I'm trying to describe. It's it's the sense that the problem is not that the rest of the world doesn't understand how awesome your answer to the problem is, <laughs> and that or that their idea is actually yours, they just haven't figured it out yet, which I think is quite a common way of approaching things, but actually to be honestly open to the fact that you may end up in the process of building this relationship of solidarity in an entirely different place. And that, of course, p- probably people would say that's politically unworkable. We need a program. We need a plan. But that's, I mean, that's that's the question, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, and and that gives me a much clearer answer about, cause, uh, you know, one of the things you say in the piece is obviously, you know, that people resort to 
democratization as a, a sort of the catch-all response for like how things are going to work and you know you know this is very common right and it extends well beyond um you know i i wrote for the paper uh, a while ago a piece on andreas malm and it's something that's that's very common in in his thinking he says you know oh, oh we need a kind of big kind of leninist party how do we stop it from being oppressive oh well it'll be sort of democratic or, or <laughs> and and so so the, the this this question right like of the way in which kind of democracy will function in the climate movement as not just a kind of a strategic cover for kind of getting what you want, but might actually change the very way in which that politics is conducted, you know, in the first place means that we then get to a point where we're starting to step beyond what seems to be the kind of premise of the of the degrowth books, which is that will that there'll be some kind of counter elite politics, and instead we'll, we'll replace it with, with something that's starting to look really very different, actually. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to me. I would say, I hope, I think I sent you an email to tell you this, but that piece on Malm was the best piece I have read in a very, very long time. I hope that stays in the show because I, I want everyone who hears this to read that piece. It's That is an excellent, really insightful piece of writing. I was blown away by it. But I also, I bet maybe that's partly also because I, you know, I, I sympathize a lot with what you're trying to describe, which is... It, I think we're we're coming at the same problem from maybe just a little bit of a different angle, um, and so I have a I, you know the, these are the reasons I have hope. Actually, it's the humility that I see that gives me hope. Jeff, man, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating as always. No, well, I I feel the same way. I feel very fortunate to get the chance to chat with you with these thousands and thousands of miles between us. <laughs>